good morning. My name's Matt, if I haven't met you. Um, let's pray before we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we uh, just give you thanks again for your grace and your mercy that you've shown to us. Um, Father, we pray that as we look at your Word now, we ask that you would speak to us um, through it, that you would use me to speak clearly, um, and that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts, helping us to respond appropriately. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Gary Ridgway uh, was also known as the Green River Killer. He began murdering women from 1982 up until 2001 when he was finally caught. Uh, many of his victims he would kidnap, uh, take to his home, rape them, strangle them, and then dispose of their bodies in the forest near the Green River near Seattle. Um, in 2001, he was finally caught and he was charged with four counts of murder. Um, but eventually pleaded guilty to 48 counts of first-degree murder. In 2003, uh, during his sentencing period, the families of the victims got to meet Gary Ridgway face-to-face and express how they felt about him. Um, some of the comments you could understandably were, were scathing. Um, some of the comments were, you're an animal. I wish for you to have a cruel, long-suffering death. May God have no mercy on your soul. No matter what you say, I will never, ever, ever forgive you. I'm glad you didn't get death. Death is too good for you. Gary Ridgway sat facing the families of the victims, stone-faced, remorseless, until he heard from Robert Rule, who was the father of Linda Rule, one of the uh, women that he'd raped and murdered. Robert Rule said, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe. And that is what God says to do. And that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. What do you think made it possible for Robert Rule to forgive Ridgway? See, God's forgiveness compels us and compelled him to forgive others. So God's forgiveness compels us to forgive others. But it can be hard to forgive. The pain inflicted is real. Um, the sense of loss can be quite profound. And we feel that sense of injustice of someone sinning against us, and rightly so. We long to see justice prevail. But what do we do with those feelings? This is often where our pride steps in. Um, I don't deserve to be wronged. I deserve better. We cling to that sense of entitlement that uh, that person owes me now. Or sometimes it leads to anger and to malice. Um, I wish that person would have the same thing or worse done to them. When do you find it hard to forgive? When does your pride grasp onto that hurt so tightly that you can't forgive someone? In uh, preparing this talk, I was um, 
challenged about my struggle to forgive certain road users who do certain things around my car when I'm on the road. Um, I don't like the term road rage. It sounds a bit too extreme, but maybe not. Um, someone may cut in on me. Um, and my responses range from a, you're kidding, through to a bit of a beep of the horn, a flash of the headlights and a, what's up? Making sure they can obviously see. But is it a big deal? It's not normally a big deal. can be, but not normally. Can I change what actually happened? No. But what I can change is how I respond. Um, even in this pretty petty example, do I allow my pride to take hold of that hurt and, and allow that to determine how I respond? Or do I allow my actions to be dictated by the grace that God has shown me? We're going to look at a pretty well-known parable um, to see what Jesus has to say about uh, forgiveness. Um, if you've got your Bibles open, um, it's Matthew 18. Um, we're just going to glance over the earlier sections of Matthew 18 um, and we see that Jesus has actually been speaking to his disciples um, about how they relate to one another. In the first five verses of Matthew 18, we learn that we are to be humble. Um, verses 6 to 9, we are to take sin very seriously. Verses 10 to 14, we're meant to look out for our um, fellow believers. Then we come to verse 15 to 20, where we're given some very practical steps in dealing with a Christian who sins against us. And can I just say, if anyone has had a Christian sin against them, read and practice Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Having that context, we come to Matthew 18, verse 21, um, and read with me. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter says to himself, having just heard the process he's meant to go through in forgiving somebody, he says, okay, thanks Jesus for that. So how many times do I need to do that? But what he's really asking, he's asking is, when can I stop forgiving my brother? And I think like Peter, many of us look through the glasses of legalism and ask the same question rather than through the lens of grace. Interestingly, Peter thinks he's being generous by offering up to seven times. You can almost hear him anticipating the approval of Jesus. But Jesus says, uh-uh. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now, some translations have 77 times. Others have 70 times seven. Um, but if you get caught up trying to work out which one it is and applying that, then we've missed the point. We're a bit like the Pharisees forgiving someone and flicking a bead across on their abacus saying, cool, only 76 more times to go. The point is we are to never stop forgiving to bring the point home, Jesus begins this parable um, to show just how incomprehensible it is for Christians to limit how much they forgive others. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. 
Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Now, I'm just going to pause there. We need to appreciate the size of this debt um, that this servant, I'm going to call this servant S1, okay? So for you mathematicians, we're going to have some pronumerals here. Um, servant, let's call him, he owed 10,000 bags of, of gold. Now, that's a little bit vague. The translation is actually 10,000 talents, um, and 10,000 being the, um, the largest common ancient Greek unit for counting. So the idea is it's big. Um, but, so what's a talent? Well, a talent is equivalent to 20 years' wage of a labourer. So 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of a labourer's wage. Um, so just to put this in monetary terms, um, looking at the Australian Fair Work Award rate for a casual labourer of 25 bucks an hour, um, assuming working a 40-hour week, 48 working weeks of the year, for 20 years, one talent is about $960,000. Um, however, from last week's parable, we know that uh, Jewish labourers tended to work 12-hour days um, and possibly six days a week. So $960,000 for one talent, multiply that by 10,000 and you get $9.6 billion. Um, and if you're a Jewish labourer, it's probably close to 216 with Australian overtime rates. The debt's massive, right? Like, that's the point. And the servant couldn't possibly pay it back. And yet, he thinks he can. He pleads with the king for patience, claiming he can pay it all back. But the king, what does he do? He doesn't reduce the debt or lighten the burden by working out like a payment plan for him. He cancels it entirely, giving the guy a clean slate effectively writing a cheque for $9.6 billion. How would you feel if you were that servant? Would you be jumping out of the king's court full of hope and you know, liberation and thankfulness, ready to show mercy to others? You'd think. But no, S1 meets second servant, S2. We'll pick it up in verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called in the servant. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Jesus concludes it by saying, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So the second servant, S2, um, he owes a relatively small amount of money. Um, it says 100 silver coins, so more accurately, it's 100 denarii. Now, one denarius uh, was equivalent to one day's wage for a labourer. So 100 denarii would be 100 days 
wage. So again, just to put it in monetary terms, um, that would be equivalent to about $20,000 um, in Australian terms. Now, that's still a significant size of money. Like, if you were to just give that to me thinking it was nothing, I would be quite happy about that. Um, and it would have been sizable for S1 as well. But when you compare it to the debt of $9.6 billion, it is one five hundred thousandth of the amount of what S1 owed the king. S2 begs S1 for patience, uh, just like S1 did of the king. Unlike the king, S2 demands that S1, sorry, S2 be put into prison until he could work off the debt. It doesn't feel right, does it? It didn't feel right for the other servants who saw what was going on either. They ran and they tell the king, and it didn't sit right with the king either. The king hands S1 over to be tortured until he should pay back the debt, which he could never do. It's futile. The point of the parable is uh, reasonably straightforward. If you're a Christian, you have been forgiven a massive debt. It is incomprehensible to not forgive others, who are, especially when you have been given, forgiven so much. God's forgiveness compels us to forgive others. So what does it look like to forgive from the heart? Verse 35. Well, as I alluded to in the start, when someone wrongs you, um, we immediately feel the injustice of the situation. Um, and in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that, um, feeling the injustice. If you felt nothing, then you wouldn't recognise or care that something wrong had happened. And that's not helpful. But to forgive is to forgive that and to forgive that debt can be really, really hard. It's to take on that, that injustice and cancel the debt that's owed to you before it festers in our hearts and before it festers into bitterness, rage, anger or malice, which we're commanded to get rid of in Ephesians 4 verse 31. And rather, we're to show kindness and compassion to that person. So instead of bearing ill will towards that person, we are to bear with them patiently, forgiving them as the Lord has forgiven us, wanting to see them blessed. That's what it means to forgive from the heart. Do you feel that way about the people that you've forgiven? Um, it may be helpful at this point just to um, point out that often there's a difference between someone sinning against you and uh, you feeling offended. Someone may have said or not said, done or not done, something that you're offended by. Um, it's helpful to try and distinguish between whether the person has sinned against you um, or has just not lived up to your expectations. Um, either way, you'll need to forgive them. But if they have sinned, then go back to Matthew 18, 15 to 20 and practice that process. If they haven't sinned, then I guess you may need to adjust your own expectations or go and talk to them about your expectations. Um, and it's helpful to realise that often we get upset at certain situations uh, by just misreading what actually happened. Um, 
So before anything festers, go and talk to the person. And remembering that our overarching goal is to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24, and to maintain the unity that Christ has already achieved, Ephesians 4 verse 3. So let's not allow wounds to fester and to produce sin in us. So why is it so hard to forgive? Well, when we're sinned against, our pride takes a battering. We believe we're entitled to something better. And to forgive is to let go of that sense of pride. It's humbling to forgive. But remember, Jesus, who was God, humbled himself to become a man and to die a humiliating death on a cross for us. Another aspect that makes it hard is often the the sense of that injustice. Um, And we desperately want to see justice done. Um, But if we're not quick to forgive, that sense of injustice um, can easily degenerate into emotions that spiral out of control um, and cause sin. And it could start with basically rejecting the offender, feeling indifferent towards them, or feeling malice or anger towards them, um, and even rage or hatred towards the offender. Um, And it may even promote revenge. Um, You often think of revenge as those hardcore revenge murdering someone or stealing something but often we do that tit for tat type revenge if someone's offended us we'll cease to care about them as much we won't return a phone call or we won't serve them in some way um, and just doing the same kind of thing that they did to us but whatever form it takes our heart attitude needs to be transformed by the spirit as we truly forgive the person and bear with them, practising grace and kindness. Another reason why it's hard to forgive, it can be costly to forgive. Um, Sometimes the sins others inflict on us um, inflict costly wounds, either financially, emotionally, reputationally. Um, Just like in the parable, S2 still owed a sizable amount to S1. However, even after being forgiven his massive debt, S1 still failed to forgive S2's debt. It's not like he needed the money. His debt's been cancelled. But that small amount of debt was still sizable in his eyes. Sometimes we overestimate the debt that we're owed, especially when you contrast that with what we've been forgiven through Jesus. Part of that is also um, forgetting the size of the debt that we've been um, pardoned because of Jesus. Which brings us to what actually helps us to forgive. What's something that's going to help us to forgive? The biggest one (laughs) and the point of the parable is God's grace. It's understanding the size of the debt that we've been forgiven. How do you feel about how much God has forgiven you? Do you feel full of thankfulness, hope and liberation? 
we need to stop and be shocked by the size of our past debt before God. If you struggle to forgive others, it may that be that you've underestimated the size of that debt that you've been forgiven. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here, but you need to know <laughs> you have a debt before God. This debt is the result of rejecting God as the rightful ruler of your life and making yourself king of your life. This is called sin, and the wages of sin is death. Your debt is massive. It's God's eternal judgment. There's no way that you can pay that back. You can't negotiate your way out of it, and it won't be all right on the day. Your debt will be paid one way or another. God's justice demands it. Your debt will cost a life. It will cost your life unless you say sorry for your rejection of Jesus as king and rightful ruler of your life and you ask for forgiveness and trust that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for you to pay your debt. See, Jesus is the only way to have your debt paid and to be able to be reconciled to God. If you're a Christian, what helps us to forgive? It's the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself frequently. Remember that until you repented and received that offer of forgiveness extended to you by God through Jesus, that you were deserving of death and God's eternal judgment. This is a very big deal. We need to let this marinate in our souls. We should never take it for granted. But praise be to God for sending Jesus to not only pay our debt, but to adopt us into his family. What an example of grace and forgiveness. And as a Christian, we also have the Holy Spirit working in us, transforming us, helping us to produce the fruit of forgiveness. So pray. Pray to God to help you understand again just how much you have been forgiven and to help you forgive others. How incomprehensible it is for Christians who have been forgiven so much to not forgive others. Do you think that the sin you experience from others is worse than the sin against God? God's forgiveness compels us to forgive others. And lastly on this point, note the warning in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This also may remind you of um, Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verse 14, where he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Does it mean that we can somehow earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others? 
No. There's no way that we can earn our salvation. Our debt requires someone's death to pay it off. And Jesus is the only one who has lived a sin-free life and in doing so is able to die and pay our debt so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. That is the only way to be saved is to repent and trust in Jesus as King and Saviour. Well, does it mean that my forgiveness depends on my ability to forgive others? Uh, No. If you have been saved and you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you will be saved. And while you may struggle to forgive, the Holy Spirit will be working in you to enable you to forgive others. If, however, you are not forgiving um, and are not working towards forgiving others, then this may be a good spiritual health diagnostic to see whether you've actually really understood God's grace and the forgiveness that he's offering through Jesus. Because if you recall in James 2, um, faith and deeds, our faith is evidenced by our actions. So we are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by actions. See, Jesus' words are hard. And they're meant to be hard. They're a hard, blunt warning because they're intended for those of us who have hard hearts, those who may think we understand grace and who claim to be trusting in Jesus as saviour, but whose lives are marked by the unfruitfulness of an unforgiving heart. We need to hear the warning. Um, It's also helpful, I think, to having talked about that, to think about what forgiveness is not. Um, So there's a few things here that forgiveness is not. It's not approving or diminishing sin. Um, It's not accepting or pretending that it isn't really that bad. Sin is serious. Jesus died for it. Sin is not enabling, sorry, forgiveness is not enabling sin. It's not good to repeatedly forgive someone in a way that enables them to keep sinning in the same way. Um, A common example in the wider church and and may even be in our church um, is of wives in wanting to submit to their husbands, submit to their husband's ungodly leadership in a way that enables him to continue to sin. Um, Husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. But when a husband sins by making ungodly choices, practicing ungodly behaviour, or is not open to biblical correction or counsel, wives who support that behaviour can become complicit in their sin by enabling them. Rather, wives who see the ungodly behaviour could say, no, I don't think this is good or godly. Why don't we do whatever, something godly? That's fulfilling their role as helper. Um, Now, if the relationship is so fractured that a wife can't actually say that out of fear, um, then it may be time for the couple to get help. Um, And if a wife is in in any fear of any physical danger, they should call the police. Which leads me to the next point. Forgiveness is not neglecting justice. Um, If someone has committed a crime, 
you can forgive them and call the police. As Christians, we're bound by the law, Romans 13. For example, if you're in an abusive relationship, that's not okay. You can forgive the perpetrator while also allowing them to experience the consequences and the effect of the law. Um, And this is really difficult in the case of domestic violence. And having seen stories on 60 Minutes and the like of um, how Christian husbands have abused their wives, um, it's obviously clear that the Bible does not support husbands abusing their wives, but nor are wives expected to endure such behaviour from their husbands in the name of submission. Uh, If you've ever experienced that kind of injustice, I am sincerely sorry. And again, if you're in ever ever any danger, physical danger, call the police. Often you feel stuck and you don't know what to do, um, how to honour God in such a situation. Um, Pray about it. Seek biblical counsel from trusted Christian friends or from pastors or elders. Lean on your Christian family because that's what we're here for. We're here to bear each other's burdens. Also, forgiveness is not denying the person ever sinned or pretending it never happened. Um, Some things you will never forget. You'll carry them for the rest of your life. But you can choose how you respond towards the person who caused those wounds. And by God's grace, you can forgive them. Forgiving is not ceasing to feel the pain. Um, If you you may continue to feel the pain for the rest of your life. Uh, Robert Rule uh, would have felt the pain of the loss of his daughter. Um, But what you do with that, don't allow sin to fester. Forgiving is uh, not necessarily a one-time event. So as that pain re-emerges, the emotions can re-emerge, but that may require us to go through the process of forgiving again and again. Trusting Sorry, forgiveness is not trusting blindly. Uh, trust is slow to build and quick to lose. Um, it doesn't nece- forgiving doesn't necessarily mean that you trust someone completely again. For example, if someone's been inappropriate with a child, my child, it's entirely appropriate for me to forgive them but not allow them to interfere with my child in any way, shape or form. Um, there's a wisdom that's required as trust is rebuilt. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. (laughs) Some people will never come to you to ask for your forgiveness, but we're called to forgive them anyway. And as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, 18. You see, God has extended the offer of forgiveness. Oh, sorry, the last one was forgiveness is not reconciliation. Um, Reconciliation requires um, actions from two parties, One party repents and the other party forgives. Um, One person can extend forgiveness, but if there's uh, no repentance on the other side, there is no reconciliation. Um, You see, God has extended the offer of forgiveness to us by the cross. But if we're unrepentant, there can be no reconciliation. We are still under God's judgment. Um, And God's justice must prevail over his offer of forgiveness because he is the ultimate judge to bring about justice. But for those who repent and trust in Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment.
So for those of us trusting in Jesus, forgiving others can be costly, but it's nothing compared to what we've been forgiven through Jesus. Forgive from the heart before it leads you into sin. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Make the measure of God's grace you've experienced the measure of grace that you extend to others. God's forgiveness compels us to forgive others. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we just give you thanks for your great grace and your mercy that you've shown to us through Jesus. We ask that you'd help us to grasp the magnitude of that, to grasp the magnitude of how much you've forgiven us. And we pray that, uh, that you would help us to bear with one another and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.